0: It's our joy to return tonight to our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. I invite you to turn with me to chapter 4 as we continue our study. If you were with us last fall, you know that we studied through the first three chapters of this epistle, chapters that really give personal encouragement from Paul to the church at Thessalonica, a church that he had a, a dear relationship with and that he was encouraged by. Chapter four, he transitions to a, a section of practical exhortation, and we began that two weeks ago in verses one and two, where Paul writes, "Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority." Of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, finally then, not that he's near the end of the book. In fact, we've got a whole semester left of studying this book uh, that we are looking forward to in chapters four and five. But finally then, as in, this is the instruction that I have been intending to give you after the personal encouragement of the first three chapters. And these verses, which Brandon led us in studying a couple weeks ago, really focus on a general charge to continued spiritual growth as we seek to excel still more in pleasing the Lord and, and growing in our obedience to Him. It's a, a summary that leads then to specific areas of life, specific aspects of obedience and how we should think and, and live in a manner that pleases the Lord. And the first of those issues that he transitions to is that of sexual purity. You'll see that verses 3 through 8 focus on this theme, and and you might ask yourself, why this topic? Why, Why address this issue, especially first, out of all the things that Paul could have exhorted them to, why choose this one? You know, you may be sitting here tonight and think, you know, well, it's not the most comfortable topic. Maybe he wanted to just get it out of the way first. Uh, you know, I don't think that was Paul's intent. I, I think there was a, a, an intentionality in it, though, and a, and a recognition of how common of a temptation it is to struggle in this way. See, Paul was writing likely from the city of Corinth. Corinth was known as a city that was filled with sexual perversion and temptation, and, and to a degree that was reflected in the church at Corinth. If you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, you remember that they struggled greatly with tolerating sexual immorality among themselves. There's no indication that the Thessalonian church was similarly tolerant. Paul doesn't rebuke them in in really any way as it regards to sexual sin, although he does provide very specific instruction. But Paul knew that, that every believer in every context faces the temptation towards sexual sin. While Thessalonica wasn't Corinth, it was nonetheless a very sexually immoral uh, place, and so this topic was very appropriate for him as it is for us. Now, the reality is our culture is also incredibly sexually perverse. I don't have to give you a lot of statistics. You just walk through life for a day or a week in our world and you see this clearly, but the reality is that our culture feeds on perversions of sexuality. Pornography in in our country is a multi-billion dollar industry. Homosexuality is not simply tolerated, it is celebrated and, and promoted, so much so that even drag shows have become common and accepted even as family events throughout our country. Sexual abuse and sex trafficking are far more common than many of us care to admit. Even many of those who identify as politically conservative in today's world and our culture increasingly affirm at least some aspects of the sexual immorality that is pervasive today. Our culture needs the simple clarity of God's Word regarding sexual immorality. But this is not just an issue for the culture. This is an issue for the church you see, Paul didn't write to the Thessalonians to condemn the culture. Other places, like Romans 1, he describes what's happening in the, in the culture, but here he is charging the church to practice sexual purity. You see, we all know our culture needs instruction regarding sexual immorality, but the reality is our church needs the simple clarity of God's Word regarding sexual immorality, But it's not just the church generally, it's each of us individually. You'll notice in this text phrases like each of you. Paul knows sexual purity is not something that we can practice corporately, it is something that each of us must practice individually. And so each of us need this text. This is not a text just. For men, it's not a text just for the younger generation or for newer believers. It is a call for all of us to be sexually pure in the midst of a perverse world. And so Paul begins his specific instruction for what it means to walk and please God with this theme. Let's read together verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If we're to be sexually pure, we must begin where Paul does, with the proper foundation for sexual purity in verse 3. The proper foundation for sexual purity in verse 3. He writes, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Notice that Paul doesn't simply begin with the command, abstain from sexual immorality. He could have done that flowing out of what he had written before, but he sets a context with verse 3 as he begins, for this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You see, Paul knows it is God's will, it is God's desire for us that we be sanctified. And that sanctification includes abstaining from sexual immorality. And so Paul is intentional to set a larger context for this command to give us the proper foundation. It's not just about abstaining from sexual immorality, although that's what we will focus on tonight, but that command and that reality in our life must be built on a proper foundation that begins with embracing God's will. He says, for this is the will of God. He's just talked in verse 1 about pleasing God in how we live, and in verse 2, about obeying the commandments that God has given. God's will is connected to those ideas. It's what we do in order to please Him. It's what He's commanded of us to do if we are to obey Him. You see, sexual purity is grounded in the will of God. We should pursue sexual purity because it is God's will. He is the one who defines and drives us to sexual purity. Think about it, the the very definition of sexual purity comes from God how we think of sexual purity and sexual sin is not a matter of simply different sexual ethics. It's not that each culture gets to decide what do we think as sexually pure or sexually perverse. It's not a matter of generational perspectives. It's not that baby boomers think one way and millennials think another. It's not a matter for cultural definition where just the majority gets to decide how we should think and live in this way. It's not even a matter the Supreme Court gets to decide. No, God clearly intends and commands that sexual intimacy be between one man and one woman joined together in marriage. And any and all sexual activity outside of that is immorality. God is the one who defines that for us. It is God's will that matters. But it's not just that what sexual purity is, is grounded in the will of God, but the importance of sexual purity is is grounded in the will of God. God's will is our roadmap, as I mentioned, for how to please God and for how to obey God. Sexual purity is a matter of our relationship with Him. If you want to excel in pleasing God, you must live in and practice sexual purity. You want to obey God, you must practice sexual purity. But the blessings of sexual purity are also grounded in the will of God. When, when the Scriptures speak of God's will, it, it is not some um, some restraint that, that we, we should buck against. It's, a, it's a, something that we should delight in and embrace. The fact is, God is our creator. He's good. He's wise. He has revealed his will to us for our good. It's, it's like reading the instruction manual for something. It, it helps it to function in the best manner possible. One of the great lies of Satan is that sexual activity outside of marriage is good, and God is withholding that from you. That's not true. In forbidding sexual immorality, God is not withholding anything good from us. It is his good and perfect will for us, for our good that we abstain. So, the proper foundation for sexual purity is embracing the will of God and it's also pursuing biblical sanctification. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. You know, we we spend a lot of our life wondering about God's will for us, especially if you're younger, maybe in high school or college or young adult, and you're wondering, what is God's will for my life? Paul puts it very clearly here for you. It is that you are sanctified that you become more like Christ. I know that doesn't tell you what school to go to or what job to take, but it is the overarching principle of how God, one of them, that how God tells you to live. It is God's will that you be sanctified. Not talking here about positional sanctification, about that reality at conversion, that we are set apart unto God to be holy, but our, our progressive or practical sanctification, that God is is working in those who are His to, to grow them into likeness to Christ in both mind and body, and that we are to participate in that work as we strive to become more and more like Christ. That is God's will for us. We'll see more of that in in verse 7, which says, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. You see, sexual purity is not an isolated part of life that you can take or leave. It is connected to the larger pursuit of biblical sanctification in your life. Many Think of it as isolated or optional, though. You know, they, they either do so to justify living in sexual immorality or sexual sin. They think, you know, I'm doing pretty well in other areas of my life as it relates to my walk with the Lord, and so it's okay that I'm struggling over here. It's not that big of a deal. Paul says, no, this is, this is about our sanctification. We can't tolerate one area of sin in our life. Sometimes people think of it isolated even when they're trying to rid themselves of it. You may be here tonight and you may think, man, I would love to be done with some sexual sin in my life, either because of the, the consequences it's producing in your life or the guilt that you feel. But you may think, you know, I want to get rid of that area, but I want to kind of hold on to some of the other autonomy in other areas of my life. Paul says, no, this is about the pursuit of sanctification. It's a, a, a part of the overall pursuit of Christ's likeness in our life. You cannot truly be sexually pure without having the power for sanctification of a converted life, and, and you cannot be sexually pure without an active pursuit of sanctification. You can't be sanctified without the pursuit of sexual purity. So, sexual purity must be built on the proper foundation of embracing the will of God and pursuing biblical sanctification. But how specifically do we pursue and practice sexual purity? Notice in the, next, the end of this verse and, and the, the next three, you see that you, that each of you, that no man, Paul is describing here how we can grow in and practice sexual purity. So let's consider secondly, the biblical prescription for sexual purity. He's not only exhorting us to this, but he's telling us how, instructing us how to live in this way. And the first step in this prescription is to commit to abstain from all sexual immorality. Notice verse 3, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Part of your sanctification is a commitment to abstain from sexual immorality. This word abstain is, is used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used more in a, a geographic sense to refer to something that is a long way or, or far away from something. I think that's a helpful picture that, that reminds us this is something that's to be far away from us. Here it has the common meaning of to refrain from or abstain from. We, we see this use in Acts chapter 15, you remember the Jerusalem council was weighing what to, to command of Gentile believers and, and how to help them and the Jewish believers relate well to each other. And in Acts 15 verse 29, they, they wrote that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things, things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things you will do well. So, what's it mean to abstain? It's that idea of keeping yourselves free from this, keeping yourself far away from this. We are to abstain from sexual immorality, a, a word that you may be familiar with in the Greek, pornea. You see the, the root from which we get words like pornography. It's A word that is translated here as sexual immorality. Other places it's translated as fornication, as sexual relations outside of marriage. Sometimes it's translated unchastity. It's a a word that came to describe really any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. You see, it's God's design for sexual intimacy that it be practiced between one woman and one man alone in the context of marriage. This is a good gift of God. This is a blessing and a a gift for marriage and family. Sex itself is not bad. It's a good gift that God has given. It's his idea. But Satan and sin have twisted and perverted this good design in a variety of ways. Sometimes that twisting is related to the object of sexual intimacy. And so you have sins like homosexuality and bestiality, incest, pedophilia that are related on who you are pursuing sexual intimacy with. And the reality is our culture celebrates many of these perversions and demands that others do the same, but God says they are immoral. Even sexual self-stimulation, masturbation, is a perversion of the object of sexual intimacy, which is to be your spouse. Sometimes the the twisting and perversion of this has to do with the, the timing or the context of sexual intimacy. It's removed from the bounds of marriage in the case of fornication or adultery if one of the parties is married. This is a common human sin since the beginning, but it's been only magnified in recent decades. You understand that it's only been in recent generations that the idea of sexual intimacy and procreation have been largely separated from each other due to medical advancements, as it were. So people can now engage in sexual intimacy with little thought of procreation, of of children. This is not how God has intended those things to be connected in marriage, and it has allowed for those sins to be rampant in our world. Sometimes the perversion is not the object or the timing or context, but the motivation for sexual intimacy or the perversion of the act itself, a self-centeredness that comes in, the pursuit of personal pleasure even at the degradation or or physical harm or pain caused to the other. Rather than the expression of tender love and selflessness and of giving oneself for the other, it becomes a self-centered act. This is what Paul says we are to abstain from, all the twistedness and perversion of God's good design of sexual intimacy. You know, the reality is that as our culture becomes increasingly sexually perverse, there's a temptation for Christians, for us, to compare ourselves as it regards to sexual purity to the culture primarily and really lower the bar with the result that we feel pretty good about ourselves when in reality we maybe shouldn't. We can think of ourselves as sexually pure because we aren't as bad as the culture around us. We don't dress in drag or practice homosexuality or sleep with multiple women. But we, we must remember the standard is not be better than the culture. The standard is God's standard and he defines it here as abstain from sexual immorality. Not simply minimize it, not simply avoid the worst kinds of it, Not just don't bring sexual immorality into your worship, which was a pagan practice of the day. Not only engage in it periodically or on business trips, but abstain from sexual immorality. Now certainly the focus of this word and even Paul's instruction here in in 1 Thessalonians is on sexually immoral acts with another person or entity, sins such as fornication or adultery. But the biblical umbrella of sexual sin is much broader and, and certainly it's not uh, inappropriate for us to see those realities even in these, this text as Paul is addressing this issue. You see, sexual sin and sexual purity includes our words. Turn over a, a few pages to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul speaks extensively of of issues of sexual purity and sexual sin in Ephesians 5. In verse 3, he says, "...but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you." Most likely greed, that strong desire or lust in a sexual context. "...and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks." Paul says it's not just the behavior of sexual immorality that we are to be concerned with, it is also our speech that our speech reflects sexual purity. It's not just our behavior in our words. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus makes it crystal clear that it includes our hearts and our minds as well. Matthew 5, a likely familiar text to you where Jesus is Speaking of the standard of righteousness in his kingdom, both to show us our need for a Savior, that we fall short of that standard, and to teach us how to live as citizens who are in his kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and following, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus isn't saying that was wrong. He's just saying there was a focus on that external behavior. And Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It's better if your right hand makes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. While the sin of lust is not the same as the physical act of adultery, and and Jesus makes that clear elsewhere, We, we should never think, well, I've looked at pornography, I might as well go ahead and call that prostitute. That's not true. There are distinctions in those sins, but the sin of lust, even when not acted upon, Jesus said, is committing adultery in our hearts. What's his point? His point is, it's a big deal. It's not something that we should tolerate simply because it's not the external act of committing that sin, and and so we should view it as such, and we should battle it as such. If you are entertaining sexual desires or indulging in sexual thoughts about anyone other than your spouse, you are sinning, and you must commit to abstain from such sin. The standard of sexual purity is not simply sexually pure behavior, it's our speech and our mind and our hearts and we must not take any of that lightly. Don't tolerate any sexual sin in your life, don't play with it, don't think I've got it under control, I can keep it here and and it'll never go any further. You must commit to abstain from all sexual immorality, to be rid of every aspect of it, to keep far from it, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians six eighteen, to flee immorality. And secondly, in this biblical prescription, back in 1 Thessalonians four, we see that we must con- you must control your body. You must learn to practice self control. Control your body. Commit to abstain from all sexual immorality and control your body. Notice he continues that you abstain from sexual immorality in verse 4 and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. He says that each of you, again the individual nature of this temptation and the priority that we must give it, know how to possess his own vessel. Now, if you have a New American Standard, you'll see a couple little numbers there, a uh, number one by possess and a two by vessel. And if you look over in your marginal notes, it says it could be a choir or body or wife for the second of those. So there are some translations and some commentaries who would say it's not possessing his own vessel in sanctification and honor, but obtaining or acquiring his own wife in sanctification and honor. Now, it's it's certainly true that a wife is to be obtained with purity and with honor. Sexual sin and immorality should not be a part of the process of, of coming together as husband and wife until you are married. But Uh, And there's some exegetical arguments for this, but uh, I don't believe that that is the best understanding. I think the New American Standard is right when it says that we should know how to possess or how to control our own vessel. And as the marginal note there says, our own body. Paul is saying if we are going to practice sexual purity we must learn how to control our body and, and how to function in a way that is consistent with sanctification and honor. Notice he says that each of you know how, that this implies that it is a, a process of learning how to conduct ourselves in this manner. Self-control does not come naturally, really in any area of life, but especially in this one, and so it must be learned. We must practice self-control. You hear that phrase, and, and that is, is both because it's an, a, a, a pattern of life, but also because you have to get better at it. The more you exercise self-control over your body, the more you tell it, no, you don't have to have what you think you have to have right now, and you practice that, the more self-controlled you will become in all sorts of areas of life. We must practice self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something we can fully generate on our own. It comes from the work of God in our life, but we must be diligent to seek to live in that manner. You see, with regards to sexual purity, we must learn to control our bodies so that we use them in ways that are sanctified and honorable rather than for things like fornication or adultery or masturbation or using our hands to access pornography or our eyes to look on a woman, digital or otherwise, with lust. You know, Paul wrote extensively to the Corinthians warning about using our bodies to practice sexual immorality, especially those sins that involve the actual use of our body connecting with another person. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 to 20, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. But every sin that involves our body is wrong, and there are a variety of them, but there is a uniqueness to joining our body with another in sexual immorality. And so we must learn to control our body to possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor. But Paul also understands that bodily self-control will only take a person so far in the battle for sexual purity. If we don't deal with our hearts, It's only a matter of time before our sinful desires are stronger than our self-control in some moment. And it's not true sexual purity if it's only external and not dealing with our hearts, which is why Paul addresses not only the need to control our body, but also to crucify your lustful passions. Notice, he continues, each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Sexually immoral behavior flows from sinful hearts. Jesus made this clear in Matthew 15, 19. He said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. If we're going to practice sexual purity, we must battle at the level of our heart and our mind. We must deal with lustful passions as he describes them here in verse 5. There's an excellent book called Passions of the Heart by John Street that deals in great detail with the heart as it relates to sexual sin. I would commend it to you, encourage you to get it to think more about these issues, but what are these lustful passions that were characteristic of the Gentiles that we must put to death if we're to practice sexual purity. Lustful passion or or passions of lust is two words in the Greek, as it is in English. One is the, the familiar word for lust or craving that denotes a strong desire or craving, not always used negatively, but often, as in this case it is. The other has the meaning of passion or Emotion and it's used in places like Romans one twenty six to describe the degrading passions that God gave them over to. Specifically, it says the women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, the the degrading pas- passion of uh, of homosexuality, to, uh, that attraction of same sex. Colossians three: five it's used, in a list of of things we're to consider our bodies dead to, immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desires. So, these, these sexual cravings and desires that characterize unbelievers are to have no place in the heart and mind of a Christian. We are to possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor rather than being fueled and driven by sinful, lustful passions. Again, Paul says these are the things that are like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is what characterizes unbelievers. Paul's not so much using Gentiles here to refer exclusively to non-Jews as though Jews can't struggle with this, but let me say that this is what's common of pagans, of unbelievers, of those who don't know God. This is what you see when you look around the world around you, is people and a culture that is dominated by, consumed by, fueled by lustful passions. Think about it. Advertising is full of appeals to lustful passions. Some immodestly dressed woman trying to get you to desire some product or or something that you uh, you would desire. Entertainment is full of that which appeals to or depicts lustful passions. So many Movies, TV shows, and books glorify sexual immorality and the passions that fuel it. It's, it's simply embraced and encouraged in our world. It's viewed as normal and natural and unavoidable. And if we're not careful, we can become desensitized to these things. But Paul says, such lustful passion has no place in the heart and mind of those who desire to please the Lord. Now, we need to understand that sex is God's idea and thinking about it or desiring it is not inherently sinful. and In fact, it's sometimes Christians have, have done a disservice in, in painting a picture of sexual purity as sex is bad and is to be avoided, and any desire for it is sin. You may have grown up thinking that, and then when you got married, you had to flip a switch from sex is bad to sex is good, and that may have been a hard hard thing to to get your mind and heart around. That's, it's not true that sex is bad. Sex is a glorious gift from God to be enjoyed exclusively in marriage. But thoughts and desires become sinful when they flow from and reflect a heart that craves what God has forbidden. That's what these lustful passions are. They're a strong passion, a desire for that which God has forbidden. John Street writes this, he says, they become sinful when they come from a demanding heart of covetousness, a heart so impassioned that it refuses to accept anything less than the object of its desire is covetous. Sexual pleasure has become the goal of such a heart, and the enslaving sexual desires of the heart initiate both internal immoral fantasies and external behaviors. See, that's lustful passion it's it's not wrong to appreciate god's good gift of sex or even appreciate the beauty of another person jesus said it's looking at a a woman for to to lust after her that is sin not not simply the looking but we must be very careful knowing the propensities of our heart to move from appreciating beauty to sinfully desiring that which god has forgiven it's very easy to go from looking to lusting which is why job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes, how then could I gaze at a virgin? You know, some excuse their lustful passions as simply a physical response that's outside their control, that such desires are connected to their bodies and therefore they have no control over them. And, And while it's true that our bodies were made for sex and marriage and and that's why some have wrongly sought to battle sexual sin by things like mutilating themselves, which doesn't address the core issue. These desires are more than a physical response. They are rooted in our hearts, where that desire to please God wars with the desire for anything else. In the case of these Gentiles and the common pattern of sexual lust, it's that desire for sexual satisfaction that is the ruling desire rather than that to please God. The reality is it's not always simply though a desire for sexual fulfillment that leads to sexually immoral behavior. We can have many other strong cravings that feed and fuel sexual sin. You know, many men are more prone to give in to the sexual temptation to masturbate or to look at pornography when they are discontent or dissatisfied in some other area of life or when they haven't been treated how they think they deserve at work or at home. And and so there can be many desires, many passions that fuel us and that cause us to, to run after sexual sin. This is why we can't view sexual sin as a a silo of life, but as an overall part of our pursuit of sanctification in every area of life. I wish we had more time to develop the, the rich biblical teaching about our hearts and desires. And again, I'd recommend John Street's book, Passions of the Heart, to go deeper into the biblical teaching on these things. But how do we put to death such lustful passions, such covetous cravings for that which God has forbidden? Turn to Romans chapter 13, briefly. Romans chapter 13. Paul says, starting in verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Well, Paul, how do we do that? How do we put aside those deeds of darkness, not live in that way? Verse 14 answers that question. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. As you grow in your knowledge of and love for and relationship to Jesus Christ, as you desire him and pleasing him more than you crave other things, you will gradually put to death those passions. They will weaken. You put on the Lord Jesus, and it says, and you make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. See, the reality is we need to stop feeding those lustful passions that are there in our hearts. You know, if you have a plant at home that you water, and it, and it grows, and it's healthy, how do you kill that plant? Maybe not on, on purpose, but accidentally. You stop watering it, right? And eventually, that plant will shrivel up and die. So often, we feed our lusts, and yet we hope they will, they will go away. He says, no, make no provision for the flesh." in regards to its lust. Squeeze the life out of them. This is what Jesus was talking about when he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's, it's the idea of radical amputation, taking steps to squeeze the life out of the, the desires that are sinful in our flesh. If your Instagram or Twitter feed are feeding your lust, get rid of them. If you need to install an internet filter or remove the internet browser from your phone, or put other protections in place to keep you from content that's sinful and feed your lust, do it. Make no provision for your flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus and, and stop feeding those things. Take whatever steps are necessary to squelch the life out of those desires and cravings. But we also put them to death positively by renewing our heart and mind. This is such an important and neglected aspect of biblical sanctification, to be sexually pure. It's not just about internet filters and accountability as necessary and helpful as those are. We must battle to think differently about sex and about other people and about God, to embrace His will, to believe what He has revealed. We must battle to desire what God has given and to hate what God has forbidden. This is why in James chapter 1, when James is describing the process of temptation that leads to sin, in in the latter part of that section, he, he says this in verse 17, that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing that you need is given to you by the Lord which means if God says, no, you can't have that, it's not a good thing. You don't need it. You shouldn't want it. If we really believe that, what happens? If we are meditating on those truths and and we are renewing our minds, well, we now start to want, to desire the good gifts that God gives and to not want to hate the things that God has forbidden. We need to renew our minds to put to death the Lustful passions that fuel sexual sin, which leads to a fourth step in the biblical prescription for sexual purity, which is to cultivate your relationship with God. Cultivate your relationship with God. Notice, just kind of an afterthought for Paul at the end of verse 5, he says, We should live not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. You see, what is the core issue for those Gentiles? it's that they don't know God. Now, it's not that they maybe haven't heard of Him. It's not that there's not some intellectual understanding. It's a rejection of God, Romans 1 says, that leads to all sorts of sexual perversion. You see, the Gentiles, the unbelievers who reject God or who don't know God are driven by lustful passions to practice sexual immorality. By contrast, believers who know God who desire to please God, are putting to death their lustful passions on the road to sexual purity. So if you want to be sexually pure, deepen your knowledge of God. If you only think about sexual purity, you won't be sexually pure. But if you think about God and his perfect character, his work on our behalf in Christ, the amazing blessings that he's bestowed on us, if you cultivate your knowledge of God which fuels your love for him and your desire to excel still more in your pursuit of pleasing and obeying him, as you spend time in his word and in prayer and in fellowship with other believers and worship, as you listen and fill your mind with good songs of truth about him, the strength of your lustful passions will weaken Your self-control will strengthen, your commitment to purity will intensify, which leads us to the final step in this biblical prescription for sexual purity, which is to consider others more important than yourself. Notice verse 6, another phrase that describes how we practice sexual purity. He says, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Some think Paul is transitioning here to a new theme of kind of how you practice business with integrity. I think we are to practice business with integrity, but Paul is continuing this theme. He comes back to it in verse 7 of impurity. It's clear that this is still connected. He's saying in sexual sin, you can transgress and defraud your brother in the matter. You see, sexual immorality is a sin against God, but it is also a sin against others. Sexual immorality pursues personal pleasure and the satisfaction of one's own desires at the expense of another. And so Paul says, don't transgress, don't wrong or defraud, manipulate or cheat another, which is what sexual immorality does. Who does it wrong? Well, it's one commentator writes these illicit sexual actions harm all who are connected with either transgressor be they spouses fiancés family members or any fellow Christians. See your immoral behavior or lustful passion is a sin against your spouse or another spouse or your future spouse or another's future spouse your children the woman or man you are looking at to lust after and other believers and beyond. This is why a key part of the pursuit of sexual purity is to love others, to consider them more than you consider yourself and your desires. Romans 13, 9 puts it this way. It says, you shall, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor." as yourself. See, love others, Paul says. Don't lust after them. View them as people, not as sexual objects. Treat them as people, as God calls you to, with love, not as a target for or participant in your sexual immorality. And love others in the sense that you recognize your sexual sin impacts them it hurts them it hurts your relationship with them it may draw them into sin and and so consider others more important than yourself not as a means to the end of your sexual gratification so that's the biblical prescription for sexual purity to commit to abstain from all sexual immorality to control your body, learning self-control, to crucify your lustful passions and cultivate your relationship with God and consider others more important than yourself. The remainder of this passage, Paul transitions really from the what of sexual purity, that you do these things and don't do these things, to the why. So, having seen the proper foundation for sexual purity and the biblical prescription for sexual purity, let's briefly consider the compelling motivations for sexual purity. Notice in the middle of verse 6, it says, because, and the beginning of verse 7, for, and verse 8, so, he gives us three compelling motivations for sexual purity. The first is that God will judge sexual sin. He says, don't transgress and defraud your brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. He says, God is the avenger. You know, there's avenger movies out there that say there's a bunch of avengers. There's really one, it's the Lord. He will avenge Others may not know about your sexual sin, but the Lord knows and will avenge. This is a solemn warning that Paul had already given to them in person, and he reminds them of here in this letter. Sometimes this will come in the form of consequences in this life for sexual sin. Sometimes, apart from Christ, it will always lead to eternal consequence. Proverbs is a book that gives great instruction and warning to young men, especially as it relates to sexual sin. And this is a consistent theme of how the, the author of Proverbs warns against sexual sin. Turn, turn back to Proverbs 5 briefly. I want you to see a couple of places where this is so clear. Proverbs chapter 5 is a, a chapter that details the pitfalls of immorality and, and warns against the adulteress at the end of that chapter he says in verse 20 why should you my son be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths his own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin he says God knows, and there will be consequences for that sin. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 23 and following says, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light for reproofs, for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. You see that focus on both the, the outward sin in the heart. For verse 26, On account of the harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Proverbs 7, another chapter that highlights the adulterous woman. And in verse 21, it says, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of the fool, until an arrow pierces his liver as a bird hastens in the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. There are consequences for sexual sin there are consequences in this life, there are eternal consequences. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God will judge sexual sin. But there is nonetheless hope If you're here tonight and you're living in a pattern of sexual sin, it is not hopeless for you because of the grace of God, as verse 11 of 1 Corinthians continues, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. In His amazing grace, God offers salvation to the sexually immoral. You can run to him in repentance and faith, and God will treat you as though you had lived Jesus' perfect life instead of your sexually immoral one. If you are in Christ, do not think that you will be spared the consequence of God's discipline if you continue to practice sexual sin, and do not trample on the sacrifice of Christ by knowingly and willingly continuing in the sin for which Christ died. We should be motivated to pursue sexual purity because God will judge sexual sin. And and secondly, because God has saved us to sanctify us. Verse 7 he says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. See, God's called us. He's, He's called us to himself for a purpose, He's saved us for a reason. And what is that purpose? Is it so that, yay, you got your get-out-of-jail-free card and now you can live however you want? That is absolutely contrary to what the Scripture teaches. The purpose that you have been called for is that you would be sanctified, Paul says. Not for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. As Colossians 1.22 says, he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Why? In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. God has declared you righteous, and he is in the process of making you righteous. And if you understand what he has done, and you love the one who died for you, you will be eager to pursue that sanctification. God began a work in you at conversion, and you should be committed to seeing that work to completion, to working out your salvation. A final motivation in verse 8 is that God has given us his Holy Spirit. Notice verse 8. He says, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man. If you disagree, Paul says with this, if you want to live how you want to live in sexual immorality, you're not just disagreeing with man, not man's opinion, but you are rejecting the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you more we could say here, but just notice a couple things, that it's the God who gives. You are rejecting the God who is generous, who has given you himself, his Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ. And you would spurn that one who has given you himself and reject his will and live how you desire. That's what Paul's saying. But it's not just the God who is generous, who has given you, but it's the fact that the Spirit of God now dwells in you. God has given you His Spirit to dwell in you. This is one of the main points Paul was making in 1 Corinthians 6 when he warned against sexual immorality because of what it means to join your body to another. When he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you that you have from God? and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We should be motivated to sexual purity because God will judge sexual sin and because God has saved us to sanctify us and he has given us his Holy Spirit. You know, if you're here tonight and your life is dominated by sexual sin, be honest with yourself. That's what characterizes the Gentiles, those who do not know God. Ephesians 5, 5 says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If your life is characterized by sexual immorality, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, but there is hope for you. As we read earlier, such were some of you. You can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified. You can be declared righteous, not because you've lived that way, but because of Christ's righteousness credited to you and your sin credited to Him, Him taking that punishment on your behalf. But you must humble yourself. You must confess and forsake that sin. You cannot hold on to that sin and hope to gain Christ. You must forsake it in repentance and turn to the only savior Jesus Christ in faith. You know if you're here tonight and you're a believer, but you have been losing the battle with sexual sin in your life, maybe just taking it lightly, maybe thinking you know I'm a whole lot better than what I see in the culture, maybe fighting the external battle but giving into the sins of your mind and heart, whatever the case may be, may you be renewed in your zeal to pursue sexual purity. Commit tonight to do all that is necessary to eradicate such sin from your life. Bring it into the the light. Talk to another mature believer, one of our pastors or elders, and take radical steps to protect yourself from that temptation as you learn to practice self-control and as you put to death those lustful passions so that you can grow in likeness. If you're here tonight and you're a believer who's been consistently winning this battle, Paul would say to you, excel still more. Don't grow complacent. Don't be overconfident. Don't grow weary. Continue to embrace the fact that this is the will of God for you. Your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this clear text that reminds us of your standard of sexual purity. Lord, we thank you for the good gift of sexual intimacy within marriage that you have given. Lord, we are so amazed at your wisdom and kindness, and yet we recognize there are so many perversions of this good gift in sexual sin. Lord, help us to guard our hearts and minds. Help us to guard our tongues and our bodies from practicing sexual sin. Lord, may we believe what you have said. May we know that you are good. May we love the things that you love and the good gifts that you give and hate the things that you forbid. And, and Lord, help us to be motivated this week to live in a way that would please you in this area of life. May we abstain from sexual immorality this week. May we control our bodies and our minds for the sake of Christ. Lord, do that work in us. We are desperate for your grace to this end. We are confident that you will complete the work that you've begun, and so we have great hope, and we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.